From Beyond Marketing, it's the 20 Minute Call, a podcast about the dreamers, boundary pushers, rebels, and champions of the skydiving industry. Each episode is a narrative journey highlighted by the highs, lows, and luck that the skydiving industry delivers as told by the most influential people within the sport. If you've ever dreamed of becoming a skydiver, perhaps opening a drop zone, or becoming the next world champion, check out the 20-minute call hosted by me, James Labarry. Today, I'm honored to introduce a guest who stands as a testament to the power of passion, resilience, and the human spirit. Beyond the multiple world championships and co-founding a team synonymous with excellence, my guest's journey speaks to a deeper narrative, one of grit, unwavering determination, and the ability to rise above the greatest of challenges. Dan Brodsky-Chenfeld, affectionately known in the community as Dan BC, is not just a skydiver. He's a legend in the annals of our sport. With over 30,000 skydives under his belt, Dan's achievements are awe-inspiring. He's a three-time world champion, has won numerous World Cups, and as a testament to his enduring excellence, he will be competing in his 39th Nationals this year. His leadership shines through as the manager of Scout of Paris, where he has played a crucial role in transforming it into one of the world's premier skydiving destinations. In the record books, Dan is a frequent feature, having set and broken several marks in large formation skydiving. But his legacy isn't just about personal milestones. It's about the countless skydivers he has mentored and coached, guiding them to their victories. And for those who wish to delve deeper into his mindset and journey, his book, Above All Else, offers not just the story of a skydiver, but a profound testament to human perseverance and will. But beyond these accolades, it's Dan's intrinsic ability to inspire, to impart wisdom from his myriad experiences that truly resonates. He is a reminder of the boundless potential we all possess. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming a true giant in the skydiving community and an inspiring figure to countless individuals across the world. Dan B.C., Welcome to the 20-Minute Call podcast. Hello, James. Dan, I got Man, goosebumps I like, reading your bio. I, I, I feel like I can only let you down now after all that. <laughs> I don't think that's probably the case. I'll tell you, I was so challenged, maybe more than any interview, to do this one with you because there's so much. There's so much to talk about. There's so much I'm curious about. So... I thought, hey, let's start from early on. I'd, I'd actually like to begin talking about your mom. <laughs> you've shared, you've shared uh, your mom on social. She's still with us today. But your dad passed away at, at, when you were four. But your mom's a powerhouse. And I have a feeling the insights about her tell us a lot about you. Would you mind sharing about your mom? Uh, my mom is Mim, Mimi Brodsky-Chenfeld. She is 88 at the moment and still living completely on her own, doing her own thing, as she always has. She has uh, been a teacher all her life. Uh, she's written several books about teaching that are used in colleges, college textbooks on teaching. 
Uh, she is going next month to speak at the National Teachers Conference with thousands of teachers there, where she's the keynote speaker at 88. Wow. Uh, she is the most incredible human being I've ever met. And it's funny, when you're, you're growing up, she's just mom, right? You don't realize, you just think, this is mom. This is how everybody's mom is. And I remember uh, discovering, you know, sometime around high school, college, that my mom is not your average person. <laughs> this is, she is not your average mom. But she, from the youngest age, I could just remember her always encouraging us to find anything that we were passionate about, just to, to find the things that we love, to experiment and discover and search for all the things that brought us joy and, and inspired us and challenged us, uh, never from a competitive end. She never was a, in any way that she motivate us to try to be the best in the world at anything, um, always to be the best we could be, but uh, to search for that. And she was uh, quite disappointed when, after my, after my search, I discovered skydiving. It wasn't what she had in mind at all. What did she have in mind for you? Anything but skydiving. <laughs> Having read your book and known you for a while or observed you, certainly, you're dogged. Like, you're a very affable guy, but I've also seen that you have an intensity. Do you get that from your mom? I didn't know I had it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I might. I mean, she, uh, she only did things that she cared a lot about. Everything she does is something that's very important to her. Uh, and since it is, then she wants to succeed however you would define that um mm. because you know it's that important so I, I think in the same way the uh the things that i'm involved with inside and outside of skydiving but mostly it connects to skydiving in some way are all things that uh, i know have a lot of of value in the success not that the value is anything monetary certainly there isn't that in, in, in skydiving <laughs> that's something that we we can't you know, that we don't aim for as much, but the value and just the, the joy and the challenge and the uh, inclusion of being able to, to take on a sport like this with, with so many friends and how much we have to look out for ourselves and each other, uh, both from the safety aspect of it as well as from the enjoyment part. So mm. um, I guess anything that I'm doing, I'm very committed to trying to do the best that I can and, and succeed. Sometimes that means world championships or world records. And sometimes it just means a great day at the drop zone. You know, I've never met an 88-year-old keynote speaker. I mean, I, I kind of get the sense that you're doing just as she was doing. I mean, you're really following in her example. I mean, who keynotes at 88? It's, uh, I tell her the way, you know, her community of teachers, I feel I, like I'm doing the exact same thing with skydivers. Mm. You know, it's a very, it takes a, spe a special, unique person to Wanda and it's early childhood education teachers also with her and it, it takes a special person uh, mm -hmm. I know as a father uh, the teachers that my kids had as you know at a young age these are important people in their lives these are huge people in their lives and it takes a very special breed and I think uh, in much the same way skydivers are a very uh, special breed and when I see her working with the teachers I, I think mom we do the, we have the exact same job we do the exact same things you mentioned your kids, either of them interested in skydiving or they've just been hearing dad talk about skydiving for way too long. They have no interest at all. And I, I don't mm -hmm. encourage them. It's not the kind of thing that uh, 
if they wanted to do it, if they were like me and thought, I've got to do that, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen, then I would certainly take them. But it's, you know, it's, it's something that people have to want to do for themselves, not because mm-hmm. their parents do it or because anybody else does it, just your own right. personal passion. Dan, before we get deeper into our interview, I don't want to assume that everybody knows your story. I think anyone that's been around skydiving for any length of time certainly is familiar with it. But for those that are not familiar, I think the the story most well known because there's I, I I would hate to corner you that this incident in your life is not I mean it's certainly not the complete story but obviously it's gotten the most emphasis and certainly changed your life. So for those unfamiliar, in 1992 you were one of 22 people on board a twin otter that crashed shortly after takeoff. Sadly, 16 people perished, and you were one of the six that survived. You miraculously recovered from traumatic injuries to go on to become a national world champion. And this is really well documented in your book, Above All Else, which is an amazing read for those that haven't read it. I'll have it in the show notes. But I want to ask you just to f- give us a frame of reference. There is a, a piece of your book that really stood out to me, and, and it, it comes early in chapter one. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just reading an excerpt and we'll build from there. Sure. The crust on my eyelashes glued them shut. Using the muscles in my forehead, I finally pried them open a crack. A faint white light was all I could see, like I was inside of a cloud. It was silent. Where was I waking up? Was I waking up? Was I dead? I had no idea what was happening, how I got here, or what was going on. But I did have one absolutely vivid image in my head. A crystal clear picture of something that seemed to have happened just moments before waking up. It wasn't a dream. It was as real as any real world experience I had ever had. I could remember the entire thing. Every action, every word, and every thought. So that excerpt from... The first chapter is describing, really, your awakening from being in a coma for six weeks. How does it hit you to read that? I mean, it's been, it's been over, you know, a little over, I guess, 31 years since the accident. Does it feel as real as you read it every time? Uh, I don't read it that often, mm. and it feels very real. Mm. It feels very real, and uh, it takes me, takes me back there. The dream that you're referring to is a very crystal vision of an exchange that you have with one of your teammates and someone you've described as your younger brother, James Lane. Can you just take us through that dream? Like what you saw, what, what, what that was about? You refer to it as a dream and I really don't have a better word to describe it, but it did not feel like a dream at all. So basically the section I just read was first having woken up uh, from being in a coma for six weeks. I had this very clear image in my head. I didn't know anything. I had no other memory at all. There was nothing in my head at the moment except for something that felt like it had just happened just prior to waking up. Coming out of a coma, I don't. maybe it was something that happened a month earlier. Maybe it was something that happened right then. But in my perspective, it seemed to have just happened. And that was a conversation I had had with James, who is my teammate, dear, dear friend. I taught him to jump when he was 14 years old. 
his entire family worked at the drop zone that I ran in Ohio. From the time he was a young skydiver, we had hoped for the opportunity to be able to be on a team together and to win the nationals and go to the world meet. And that's what we were doing. He was with me in California. We were training for the world championships. That's what was happening when the, the crash happened. Uh, and I just remember basically finding myself in free fall. Um, it wasn't like there was an exit from the airplane. I just came into this dream, for lack of a better word, just recognizing I was already in free fall. And it wasn't normal free fall. It was, it was quiet. The wind was uh, just gently suspending me. It was like I wasn't descending. I was being held up by a light, quiet breeze. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't scared, oddly enough. It was, it was comfortable. It was fine. It was beautiful. But it was definitely weird. I mean, it was, it was not normal. Uh, and I looked up, and James was flying down to me like he would on a skydive, like he was swooping me. Uh, and he had this uh, very playful, shit-eating grin in free fall quite often, and he had it on his face. Uh, and he just flew down to me, and we were talking in free fall just like I'm talking now, not having to yell or anything like that. And he said, Danny, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. And he said, uh, you're not supposed to be here. You need to get back down there. And I started to realize what I thought might be going on. And I said, are you coming with me? And he said, no, I can't. And I said, James, we were just getting started. You know, we were just getting started. It was our dream. We had everything. We were just getting started. You got to come with me. And he said, I can't. Uh, it didn't sound like it was his decision, but it was just how it was, and he had accepted that he couldn't. He said, but it's, it's okay. There's more places to go, more things to do, and more, more fun to have. He said, tell my mom I'm okay. And basically then said, but you need to get back down there. You need to go get control of the situation. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but he said it very assertively and he put his hand in you know the way teams do their count practice count in the airplane before you you know a couple minutes before exit you know we always did that in our own little special way and he put his hand in put my hand on top of his he put his hand on top of mine i put my hand on top of his so our hands were together and he said uh i'll see you later and it wasn't goodbye at all it was a definite, I'll see you later. And just before I even thought about it, I just said, I know, I know. He started the count. Actually, he started the count. We did the count first, and then he said that. But he said, ready, we did set, go, we clapped, and then we would high 10 with the whole team. And then he said that. And as he did, I started to descend. He started to fade from my grasp. And I went into free fall and woke up. That's how I remember it. No. Thank you for sharing. Short of calling that a dream, being that it's it's so visceral, it's so clear. And I've heard you tell that story both in the book and on video, and it never wavers in detail. I feel for our listeners as I've watched you express it, 
that it's not coming from a rote place. It's coming from, I'm seeing you recount it from your brain as if it were yesterday. Would you say that that's almost sort of a religious experience as much as anything? I mean, I'm not a particularly religious person, but uh, Mm. it definitely confirmed any spiritual questions or beliefs that I had. Not to get too deep here, but I anticipate that being that that was so clear that, I mean, you have me believing that you'll see him again. The message was so clear. Coming out of that, one thing that, you know, in the hero's journey, as it is, Dan, of, you know, our hero comes from this terrible tragedy of losing a good friend and and James and teammate, and then picking themselves back and, and moving forward. And that's like what the Hollywood version wants to hear. But was there ever a period, I mean, like, because you did, you you rehab so hard against every doctor's wish for you. you, Have you struggled with survivor's guilt of going like, why me? Why did I survive that and 16 others didn't? More so shortly after the crash and and James especially. I mean, he was there because... I told him to come join my team. It was something that we had talked about, something that he loved the idea of. It was something that he wanted to do. He was thrilled to be there. He was having a great time. But he was there because I asked him to come. You know, mm-hmm. I'm praise the first person I called when I had the opportunity to build this team. But that experience with James relieved me of a lot of that survival's guilt. Um, I knew he was okay. And, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that Everybody else was too, uh, and and knowing that took a lot of that took a lot of that pressure away. And having him say, "Go get control of the situation," when I had no idea what the situation was, I woke up with this attitude of, "All right, let's find out what the situation is. Let's mm-hmm. let's see." This already it was so much easier, for lack of a better word, again to handle the situation having had him prepare me for it, prepare me for waking up and prepare me for walking into the situation with the conversation we had. When you came to out of the coma, having just had, I think it's almost more appropriate to say that clear vision, did you already know? Like you didn't know what happened, but when people, you know, did you already know that James was gone? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Um, But I didn't know how it had happened. I did, you know, we were together a lot. We may have been in a car together. It may have been a, you know, I mean, it may have been a skydiving accident, except we were very safe skydivers, and I never would have expected that. Uh, it could have been we were training out of the Cessna, because there was times we were still jumping the Cessna back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea how it happened, but I knew James was gone, and I I know when I asked what had happened, their biggest concern was how they were going to tell me that James was gone, mm. and they didn't have to. One thing, Dan, is the, the name of the team was Paris Air Moves. I don't think a lot of people realize that your teammates, you know, one of them was Troy Widgery, who started, you know, Go Fast, Go Fast. Energy Drink, mm-hmm. and uh, Tom Falzone, a, a legend in his own right, and, you know, with quite a very respected resume. And it looked like touch and go for a moment that you weren't going to be able to to make it in time or get back jumping in time for the Nationals. And so the guy you call in is is Kirk Werner. 
it's wild when we when we when we you know look at the paths and the journeys that all of you have been on since that time. And we were pretty much all kids. Mm. You know, Tom is a is a year or two older than I was, but he had you know just started competing. Uh, I had just turned thirty. Kirk was, I guess, twenty six. Uh, James had just turned twenty one. But you're right; it's quite the quite the crew. Because you you picked yourself up, and it just seemed like at least the way that I interpret it is, you go straight marching in towards nationals, like like gung ho mission. I will get back. But how do you grieve amongst that? Like, I'm, I'm trying to compete at the highest level. Were you able to, to grieve? No, the most difficult part was that most of the grieving pretty much had to be done alone. I had the privilege of being unconscious for six weeks while everybody else had been dealing with funeral after funeral and mm. the actual loss. And I couldn't start putting them all back through that again. You know, the grieving was done pretty privately but again having had that conversation with James made the grieving somewhat easier and he made clear you know just at his get control of the situation made it clear to me that that there was only so much I could be in control of but I could be in control of my own journey my own health uh, I was so lucky. I mean, I was so lucky I wasn't paralyzed. I was so lucky mm-hmm. that, you know, I had only, you know, broken my neck, collapsed my skull, smashed my head, and been in a coma for six weeks. But I could still move everything. All my internal organs were still working. I wasn't thinking too clearly right off the bat, but it was clear enough. Um, and just to be that lucky that I was still capable of, of recovering and coming mm-hmm. back. Was such a was such a gift, was such a blessing that it would have it would have been wrong not to try to make the most out of that gift. Mm. The accident happened in 1992, and I think a lot of people when they think of Dan BC, it's almost as if that it's 1992 and then forward on. But there was a good nine years before you got to 1992, where I believe the Canatsers offered you the opportunity for, for sponsorship, which allowed you to invite sort of the teammates of your choice, if you will. But, but for nine years, you're living in a van, essentially, you know, sort of, I mean, the way I visualize it is just doing whatever was necessary at the drop zone, doing whatever job there was to do, and living in a van to chase this dream. Tell me how accurate that, that actually is. <laughs> <laughs> well, during that, uh... It's close. It's close. I had to, I did have a trailer for a while too, so uh, okay. it wasn't always the van. Living it um, up. I I was uh, I started jumping my freshman year in college at Ohio State. It was a tiny little club in Centerburg, Ohio, which is north of Columbus, near Mansfield. Uh, they rented a one seventy two from the local, you know, flying club, and took the chairs and the, you know, the seats and the door off of it and. That was it. That's what we jumped from. Uh, and I, at the end of the first year, I probably had 40 or 50 jumps at the end of the season. And they closed down, and I went down to Xenia, to the Green County Sport Parachute Club at that time, uh, which was pretty much near state-of-the-art drop zone for the early 80s. Uh, they had several airplanes. They were Cessnas, Twin Beaches, all painted the same. And I just like, wow, this is, place is amazing. 
you know, it's amazing. I made it through college. I was jumping so much down there, but, uh, so my first year basically had about 60 or 70 jumps. Uh, but I was at the drop zone so much that they offered, you know, me a job. And basically the job at that time was, uh, pack all the round parachutes, uh, cause it was all student round parachutes back then and do everything. Basically, you, you know, you mow the grass, you wash the planes, you clean the toilets, um, you do whatever there is to be done. And they said, you can jump whenever you want to, and whenever I want to. And he's, yeah, yeah. You jump all you want. I, I can, I want a lot. I want to jump a lot. Uh, I said, yeah, whatever. Whenever there's a chance, if everything's done, jump. And we had so many round parachutes that I could, I didn't really have to pack anything during the day. There's like a hundred of them. Uh, so I, I bought a second rig for $150. So had, uh, and these were both squares. I started on rounds. I learned on rounds, but I had two squares, but uh, there was one with a hand deploy, one with a pullout, one that was a strato cloud, one that was a strato star. So one was, basically 230 square feet and the other one was 150. Uh, one of them had a three ring. The other one had R3s, which are a whole nother system to cut away. So I had two completely different rigs and I got on every plane I could get on and did like 700 jumps the second year, which is a lot out of a Cessna drop zone. Did Jim West uh, regret the deal that he made with you? <laughs> you get a little more chips so. than he got. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'd pack a hundred round parachutes at night and they'd be ready to go in the morning and I'd be on the first load. Uh, he, Jim taught me to fly. Uh, so that same, over the next couple of years, I got my instructor rating, my riggers ticket, uh, my pilot's license. I got, you know, AFF and tandem, they didn't even have yet. So uh, I started competing in 83 Got on a four-way team there. It was just, wow, just seeing four-way for the first time was incredible and amazing flying. And I graduated in 84, and I wanted to do more four-way. I wanted to do more four-way. I wanted to be at the drop zone. And at the age of 22, I thought the best way to do this is to buy the drop zone, um, mm -hmm. which I didn't have any money, though. So made a deal with Jim that was going to be nine years of payments or something basically took over the drop zone and at first was living in a trailer in the parking lot of the drop zone. AFF and tandem started shortly thereafter. I got my AFF and tandem ratings, kept doing the team every year, uh, and was living there. Uh, after 1987 and uh, 1986, we managed to come in second place. We tied the golden Knights, uh, uh -huh. and got a, got a medal in four way. And, you know, we're still a team from Ohio doing 150 jumps a month or so, which is a lot. Uh, but thought, man, we can we could win this thing. And then uh, the French team got sponsored and suddenly now upped the ante completely. The French team was sponsored by TAG, the watch company. Uh, he bought them their own airplane, a turbine, Pilatus Porter, bought them two sets of parachute equipment, hired Tom Pyrus, who is the current world champion, to be their full-time coach. Uh, bought them a house a mile from the land drop zone. Uh, had packers for them. Hired full-time packers to pack because they had two rigs. Uh, no one had ever heard of that. Uh, and they were doing a 1,000 jumps a year. And suddenly it was like, well, we can't compete with that. So I thought if I'm going to try to compete with that, then I need to go someplace I can jump all year round and find five other, four other people who have no sense. Uh, so I found them in Arizona. Then I was living in the van in Arizona. We started a team called Coolidge Force, which then Air Moves was after that, and then Airspeed after that. 
Yo, a quick break here to address the drop zone owners listening to the pod. If you're a DZO, then you know the insanity of taking your passion and making it your business. Hmm, why'd you do that? Running a DZ is hard. Between the stressors of liability, 30-day payment terms on fuel after four weeks of miserable weather, and angry staff who are convinced they've been skipped in the rotation, you need a tool that helps reduce your stress. Enter Burble Software. Conceived by a DZO who's been in the trenches just like you, Burble is the most sophisticated manifest and booking software on the planet. Your life as a DZO is hard enough, so don't be that DZO who tries to save a few bucks using software that wasn't built for us. Burble, the must-have drop zone management software for the 182DZ to the multi-turbine monster. Burble. Did you feel conflict, though? Because here you are buying a drop zone, and then suddenly, whoa, my heart's telling me I really just want to do this four-way thing. So how did you exit out of the, the, the DZ situation? I pretty much gave everything back. The five years of payments were out the window, so it, it was okay for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still worth uh, but I couldn't, you know, I, I knew that I'd never be able to to win, you know, the world meet if I kept in it. As far as our team had come in the Nationals, the bar was completely reset uh, when TAG got sponsored. Can you give me a glimpse of your makeup? Uh, I said that you were dogged. And what I meant by that is the goal of, say, beating the, the Golden Knights and, and winning Nationals has been going on for such a long time from... You know, starting off with four-way in 83 and, you know, still hadn't got there by the time your accident in 92, where is this competitive spirit or drive come from? Because a lot of people would have quit. You know, it, it, it makes no sense at all. And it wasn't like I'm a naturally competitive person. I didn't grow up with competing at everything. But I just loved it, man. I just loved the flying. I loved the competition. I loved the challenge it was uh, to me and to my teammates to try to just push this as much as we could. Um, and to be, you know, to, to jump all weekend hoping to get 35 really good seconds, you know, you, all the work in there just for that, all the effort that goes into it. Um, but it was just the pure, the pure love of the sport. That was really all it was. And the better that we got, the more that I loved it and I'd watch the, the French team and then the Golden Knights started training harder than ever and I'd see what they could do, which was I didn't even think was physically possible. And I would just know, man, I, I know I know I could do that. I know I can if I could just figure out how to get the opportunity to, to put the work in. Um, and that was that was it. It's you know, for all skydivers, if you think of it, all skydivers I think have a competitive nature. Just much of it competing against themselves, right? All of us start jumping. And if we can't continue to expand, if we can't continue to get better in some way, then usually people, they quit. They find something else to do. But most of the people that keep skydiving, it's because everything, you know, even if you never compete as such, you know, at the nationals or anything, uh, just on your own, every improvement that you make, you can become a little faster at diving. You become a little better at this. It's to take on a new discipline and, that's that's it that just the the fun increases dramatically you feel like you're flying we are flying and mm. it just made me never want to give up how did you through the through the arc of the 
of your four-way, when you were professionally skydiving in four-way, how do you deal with, like, you have such a love, a fervency. I, what happens when you have a teammate that doesn't love it as much as you or, or is not as committed in, in everything? How do you deal with that as a teammate? Well, you, you try to not have anybody that doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first that's the first requirement is you have to want it bad. You have to love it. You want to do your best, you know, and this is at, at the level of, you know, you called it a professional team, but it was never, you know, there's no real, perf- no one gets paid to do this. It's not actually mm-hmm. a, prof- <laughs> you know, it's all, I mean, the teams now people look at, at the top teams and think of it like professional teams there. It's all from their heart as much as it was for mine, even though there's more help financially than there used to be, but, you still, it's not a professional sport where you're, you know, like basketball <laughs> or something like that. At any level, when you have a team, you want to make sure the first most important thing is that everybody is equally committed. So when I start the team, if I'm committed, I want to do, I want to win. I want to do a thousand jumps, whatever. And another teammate as well, I'm, I, you know, winning would be okay. And I'd love to do it, but I, you know, but I want to do 200 jumps. Well. We may not have the same goal, but we need to agree on the same goal for at least that year, for that time, for that team that we're going to do. So it may be, okay, this is my best opportunity, the best team I could have at the moment. I have to back down from what my ultimate goal is. And hopefully this person will, you know what, with my enthusiasm balancing them, they'll do, they'll put more into it. So hopefully we can agree on what the goal is for the team. And it may be less than what someone wants to do and more than somebody else. But you have to have that. Everybody has to understand what the commitment is, what that means. You know, what does it mean to be committed? What is that? What's it really mean? How much work is involved? How many jumps are we going to do? How much are we going to be visualizing? What's, how are we going to, how are we going to treat each other? How are we going to behave? What's, you know, there's so many questions to ask, but you, once you've set all these things, then they should, you know, much, they're much more likely to come through once they know what it is they're signing up for. Uh, so you want to avoid the situation that you were, that you were saying happens where one person just isn't as committed. Usually that's the case because people just don't know what they're signing up for. One thing that, that struck me was after the accident and you're putting together uh, the new air moves, I suppose, or just updating the team. And correct me if I'm wrong, you call a guy, I think his name is Tom Kahn. Kahn? I called Mike Trad. Mike Trad, that's the name. And he was in college, and I was like, "Wow!" If I recall, he dropped out of college to come join the team. I have that right. He put college. He was less committed to college <laughs> to join Coolidge Force, but okay. he was still in college when he was on Coolidge Force. I that's believe right. he was out of college when we started Air Moves, but he wasn't on Air Moves to start with. He was uh, the point flyer on Coolidge Force. Very, very close friend, and I asked him to come and fill in for for James mm. and take that position. That was his position on Coolidge Force. It wasn't. Uh, it was you know it was going to be a short. It was like a two month thing, so it wasn't like someone's committing forever. And he uh, he couldn't say no. It struck me how he sort of dropped everything and like yeah I'm I'm going to join this team. So Kirk was supposed to replace you, but. But then you ended up recovering. So Kirk didn't end up being on that Air Moves team. Is that correct? Kirk still was. Kirk, uh, Okay. I was planning on, you know, I was getting the, the halo brace. I had a halo on. They screw this mm-hmm. cage into your head when you break your neck. Uh, and my hope was they would take that off and I would need, you know, 
a month or so to get ready and then I'd be able to start jumping. And they took the halo off and I lowered my head and my whole body went numb. They, they said, well, you've got to go right back in for surgery. So I had my neck operated on right then. And now we are basically uh, three months before the nationals. Um, so I had to replace myself at that point. I had met Kirk at the 89 nationals. He was on a team called the Magnum Men. Uh, and we became instant friends. You know how it is. You meet people like yourself, for instance, where you know, you know you've got a buddy within minutes and have that kind of a relationship. Uh, and we competed against each other and with each other when I was on Coolidge Force. So we did eight-way together. We did 16-way together sometimes. Uh, and I thought, who can I get to come out here? Who will drop? And Kirk had a drop zone in Illinois that he and his dad ran. And I said, who can I get to drop everything and come out here right now? Who will just drop everything they're doing? And who? And who? he's also a very experienced four-way competitor at that point. Who could come in and just fill in for me and, and not be missing a beat? And I thought, Kirk will do it in a second. It was funny because he, he did, right? He did drop it. Uh, and he was, he was just running the drop zone then and, you know, he was doing fine. And he drove across to Paris and he drove in in this little, I think it was called a stealth sports car. Little cool, little cool sports car. And he, he pulled in and I was like, Kirk, man, you need to sell the car. He's like, I'm not selling my car. I love this car. This is the coolest car ever. You know, I was like, you won't have it in a month. <laughs> he was like, there's no way I'd ever sell that car. Anyway, car was gone in a month. <laughs> you know, we were, you know, it's 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 a quote unquote sponsored team, but you know that there's so many other living expenses, survival expenses, training expenses that you have to absorb. Uh, so anyway, the stealth the stealth was gone uh, before the nationals, I believe. Uh, <laughs> so those are the guys that came out, and then after ten weeks after surgery, I got back in the air. Uh, the team was. You know, this team was still training and training hard, and they, you know, but it was, they're trying to put it back together in a very short amount of time. And, you know, with guys who'd just been injured pretty severely and through a traumatic situation, the weakest part of the team was for the training was when we had to do slot switchers on the jumps. Uh, in four way, there's times, you know, it's a five or six formation sequence, but there's times that something in the sequence will flip people and it becomes a 10 or 12 point sequence. And the team just hadn't had time to train these different slots. And, you know, I had much more experience than everybody else from the prior teams. Uh, I did a few jumps to practice with them to see how it was going. I'd been visualizing four-way like crazy. So uh, other than being really skinny and weak, uh, I remembered how to skydive really well. And I filled in on the jumps at the Nationals that were the slot switcher jumps. I didn't know you could do that. Uh, you have an alternate on the team. You can have an alternate. I always thought that the alternates came in in lieu of maybe injury. I didn't know an alternate could come in in lieu of the, of of you no. know what what the dive plan was. Well, I think you all were we you, you all finished bronze in that meet. Yeah. Amazing. That's correct. Yeah. Did everyone around you just say, "Dan, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? Slow down. You know, stop." I mean, was that it was sort of the voices in in you were hearing? Yeah, I think there may have been some of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, you know, I would have, I was okay to do it. I wasn't, I wasn't in any greater risk. You know, after when I lowered my head, my whole body went numb. I was like, holy crap, man, this is, this is, this is bad. 
I mean, I was that close to, you know, becoming a quadriplegic, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but I said to the doctor, you know, I said, is this, what am I risking here? You know, after the surgery, he goes, well, you'll never break, you'll never break where the surgery is. You've got a new vertebrae and steel plates holding it together. You know, it could break above or below, but you'll never break that. Mm -hmm. And basically said, you're at no greater risk, really. I mean, once you get the strength back in your neck, once you get your you know, muscles built back up and strength back, you're at no greater risk than you ever were. Does your body, do you feel the effects of that accident today in your body? It's, you know, it's the accident, but it's, a, you know, it's 31 years and having done another 25,000 skydives since then. And, you know, it's a lot of miles, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I do okay. Hmm. I do okay. You know, there's so much detail. It's, 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 it's a shame to sort of gloss over it. But I mean, this we could talk about this for hours in terms of the progression from that 92 bronze team and then, you know, silvers and eventually winning nationals and then going on to win the worlds. I'll tell you what struck me, Dan, is I read that you said it took winning to discover that it wasn't all about winning. What does that mean? At the 95 World Championships, was finally airspeed you know, made it to the world meet, right? And, and uh, this was had been our goal for years. This has been, uh, and the airspeed team was made up of uh, the team from Deland and the Paris Air Moves, and who had been adversaries going against each other this whole time. We put the strongest team together. We'd made it to the world meet. It was being judged live, so as we as we got under canopy we could see what was happening and we tracked off on round 10 of the 95 world meet and deployed our parachutes and we saw people running out from the tent waving u.s flags uh and we knew we knew at that point we had won and we landed down there jack jeffries one of the teammates who is the leader of the deland team so he and i were uh, the two biggest adversaries <laughs> prior to, to starting airspeed. And we landed down there and there was a big celebration and lots of champagne and, uh, you know, lots of hugs and high fives and the whole bit. And then everybody kind of walked away and Jack and I were sitting there by ourselves. And uh, we just looked at each other and said, was that it? <laughs> you know, was that it? And it, uh, I think that was it. I was like, Wow. So that's, we're winners now. I guess we're winners now. Uh, and it was great. It was great. But to think of all the years, all the dedication, all the sacrifices, all the hard work that went into, if that was the whole reward for it, that was, that was nothing. And what was worth it was all the sacrifice, was all the commitment, was everything that you put into it. The pursuit of that goal was way more important than actually achieving the goal. To have something that you were that committed to, to have something in your life that you wake up every morning so excited about, ready to take on the challenges, ready to face whatever you have to, because you love it that much that it's worth it. When there's nothing, there's really no prize other than the fulfillment of that dream and that joy. And had we never won, it would have still been worth it. Now, mm -hmm. that being said, I'll take winning over losing any day. However, I lost a lot uh, prior to winning, and uh, it's not about the winning as much. It's about having something you love so much you want to win. 
whether you do or not is not as important. Yeah, sometimes I can say, you know, I, I've had a, before getting into skydiving, I had a career in golf, and there's a famous golfer named David Duval that won the British Open or the Open Championship. And his response was, and he he was a, he dominated in the sport, you know, and he wins this most historic event. And he says, that's it. But the difference between he and you was he was never the same again. The the juice was gone. The 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 you know, it was almost like he got he got to the pinnacle we've been dreaming about for so long and working so hard for. He gets it. The victory isn't quite as sweet as he imagined it to be. And his career was never the same. But that wasn't you. Maybe I left skydiving more than he loves golf. I remember getting up the next day and I was like, man, I'm still 5'8". <laughs> I thought I'd be 6'2 over here getting out of bed and as strong as an ox. Nope. Nope. My neck's still sore. <laughs> you know, but it was, uh, it, you know, I mean, I loved, I loved, I loved the winning part of it also, but that's not, if that's all it's about, it's not worth doing because you may never win. If it's all for that, you know. A lot of people have put the same effort into it, but you don't, you don't win. I mean, that happens a lot. So if that, if that's all it's about, then it's very possible you're doing it for the wrong reasons. For me, it was out of the, the love of it more than anything, but I didn't really realize it until we won. I was like, Oh good, man. I'm glad I didn't pour it all, all my heart and soul for that. And then we went right back up and did it again. <laughs> Who are your skydiving heroes? Oh, I have so, so many, uh, so many. Well, James for sure mm. is one just haven't had the chance to take him when he was 14 and, and watch what he could do and watch the pure joy that, that child, childish joy to really see it so genuinely. I mean, you see it in, in skydivers of all ages all the time, but this, to see it, you know, uh, from him in so many ways, James was. Chet Poland is another guy who only some of the old skydivers will remember, but Chet was a barnstormer in like the teens and 20s. Uh, and in the 80s, he was in his 80s. Uh, and he used to live in DeLand in his van. Uh, and then he'd come stay with us at Greene County in the summertime. And uh, just what, what a guy, what a character. I mean, he was jumping when they only had one parachute and just doing it at shows out of, you know, it was scary enough just to get in an airplane back then. And as soon as tandems were invented, he was like, let's go right now. <laughs> let's go right now. And just the, the, the way he approached life, making the most of every day, doing the things that he loved was, was fantastic. Um, so many of my teammates, you know, I could, I could go on and on. There's, there's so many people. Got a random question here for you, Dan. What does your morning routine look like? I get up really early without an How alarm early? clock. How Four. early is really early? Four. Four or 4.30. No alarm clock. I just wake up. I have coffee waiting for me and uh, go to the gym by 5, 5.30, the latest, and get a good workout in. It's the workout that's changed a lot over the course of the years, but still get in there and, and do it every day, be done working out by seven, usually at the drop zone by eight, eight thirty. 
if I'm going to the drop zone that day, which most of them I do. Every picture I've ever seen of you, you're very physically fit. And, and, and particularly in, a, in the, like the early 80s, going to the gym and being healthy wasn't as popular as it is today or even 20 years ago. So why have you been so ahead of the curve on that? I was really, really small growing up. And uh, I was working at the, the Jewish community center. And they had a little gym. So I started going to it, you know, when I was a teenager, but not doing that much, but at least getting introduced to the idea and thought if I'm going to be this short, I may as well try to be strong, you know, minimally, but in an introduction anyway, more than more than most 13 year olds, or 15 year olds. But uh, my biggest motivation was my freshman year in college, I uh, was 18, was uh, hanging out with a few friends at a bar, the drinking age in Columbus was 18 at that time. Uh, and my lung collapsed just sitting there, Mm. just sitting. I didn't know what it was, but I suddenly got this really bad pain in my chest. Wow. What the hell is that? And I walked home, which was like a mile and laid down and I had this terrible pain in my chest. It wasn't going away. So I walked over to the university hospital and they said, your lung collapsed. And I was like, what the heck were you talking about? So what were you doing? I said, I was sitting there having a beer. I was doing nothing. You know, I wasn't, it was my first beer. Now, you know, and I've never been a big, never been a big drinker. So it wasn't like it was a big party thing. Uh, but either way, you know, I said, it just, how could it collapse? And they said, well, you must just have some weak areas of your, your lung. And I said, well, how do you make them stronger? Uh, and they said, you really, you know, you really can't do anything to, to make them stronger. And I said, well, how do I protect them? And they said, well, you know, I don't know how you protect them. It's, what else could make this happen? So if you get hit hard in the chest, it could do it. And I described opening shock to them. Uh, and they said, uh, if you, yeah, that sounds like something that could make your lungs collapse. And I thought, well, that's, I would just started jumping. I was, man, well, that's, that's unacceptable. And I said, well, what if, uh, what if I just build up my upper body? So it's like a big shield to, to protect my lungs. And they were like, well, that'll, that'll work. That should help. So I started working out, and the working out was pretty much like 12 sets of bench pressing every day. <laughs> uh, just because I was just, it was just for the purpose of protecting, you know, my lung. Is when I first started. I was, I worked out a lot, but that was the reason. And then after the plane crash, they said, had you not been in such good shape, you, you never would have made it. And I thought, well, I think I'll try to stay like this, <laughs> uh, try to stay healthy, try to stay strong, try to stay in as good shape as I can, because life will throw some more curveballs at you. And if you're lucky enough to just get old, then there'll be that curveball. So I tried to stay in shape my whole life. Mm. So you get to the DZ around eight, and you are the general manager for arguably one of the largest and best drop zones in the world. What does a typical day look like for the DZM of Scott F. Paris? There is no such thing as a, a typical day. Fortunately, we have a great staff, and uh, they don't need me at all. So I, I go and I, you know, check in with everybody, see what's going on. You know, I love I love every part of it. I love going to the tunnel and seeing the young students and new jumpers and people flying in the tunnel. I love going down to the school and seeing the enthusiasm of the new students there. Uh, I love to do AFF anytime I can. I decided I was going to stop tandems. I don't need that wear and tear anymore. 
uh, but loved doing loved doing tandems also. You know, work with the pilots, just keep up with them. I'll just go and jump, see who's jumping, and get on the load, take care of that. And then there's all the, of course, planning for all the events and all the back the back office things, which there is an endless list of, as you know. My door is open, and I'm right in the middle of everything. And if I sit in there too long, somebody says, "Hey, Dan, you're on a five minute call." And I said, well, I don't, I, I can't go. They said, you'll be, by the time you tell me you can't go, you'll be down from the jump. Get your crap, but go get your gear and go. And then I'm on a load. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. It's the best job in the world. I, I love it. I love the community. I love the Kanatzer family that owns it. They're some of my closest friends. Um, we all share the same vision for what we want to have. We want to have the best drop zone in the world. And the best drop zone in the world is, of course, one that is as safe as it can possibly be. So everybody's looking out for each other all the time. Uh, the planes are well taken care of. The jumpers are watching out for each other. We're, you know, the safer we can keep it, the better it is. And it's also something that just welcomes everybody crazy enough to jump out of an airplane. If you want to, we don't care. You're there. You want to make a jump. You are welcome. You're one of the family immediately. Uh, and it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful environment. Shannon Pilcher, a few weeks ago during our podcast interview, said, you know, Paris, they always do it first class. And what he was specifically referring, referring to was, I don't remember the year. I want to say maybe 2005, but I could be wrong, when his team won open class four-way against the Golden Knights in a jump off. And I actually remember people that were there where apparently there was this big screen and you were getting live judging on the big screen or, you know, near the pool area. And I just thought, wow, that's so great. Why don't we see that in more nationals? That just revs up the excitement. But I heard that. I'm like, yeah, Paris ahead of the curve. That was awesome. It, it You know, Pat and Melanie just want it's not enough to just have a drop zone you know for them to to sleep at night they need to know that they did everything they could to make it the best place it could possibly be even when it comes to to things like that it's and that's the kind of you know it's what i want to be a part of that's the kind of drop zone i want to be at you have been in one of the most viral videos on youtube ever made certainly for skydiving (laughs) <laughs> and oh that video I'm, is I'm, ter- I'm terrified wondering what this is <laughs> is I when Tom Cruise and James Corden jumped at Paris I, I think I saw a little bit of your shoulder uh, in the sky van <laughs> right before they launched yeah. <laughs> but tell us about that because every time I watch that video and I've watched it a few times it is so funny it, it went viral because it was so good but can you share the experience of having Tom Cruise and James Corden on the drop zone and what that day was like you know, there's a lot of times with, you know, we do a lot of Hollywood stuff in Paris because that's where we are. Much of it I'm not that involved with. Uh, Scott Smith was coordinating a lot of this. Uh, Craig O'Brien was filming it because Craig had just filmed Mission Impossible with uh, with Tom. They asked me to put Tom through the refresher course, basically. He had about 200 jumps, but he hadn't jumped in a year or whatever. He really didn't have an opinion one way or the other, but if I'm going to put somebody through the refresher course, we're going to do it, right? You don't, I've put friends with thousands of jumps through it and they're like, wow, we're really glad we covered all that stuff because you need to, right? Uh, and I was kind of thinking, ah, man, I bet, I bet 
Tom is just going to think, can we just get this over with, please? I know we have to do it, but, you know, I got it. I got it. You know, it's what I was expecting from him. He wasn't going to die on my watch. So (laughs) Uh, I put him through just I was put anybody else through. I was really impressed by he paid attention to every detail. You know, he was saying, you know what? I haven't had it explained that way before, and that's really good. Let's go through that again. Let's go through that again. He really showed me how, you know, a guy who decides to do all of his own stunts like that and does many of them that are far more dangerous than normal skydiving. I mean, you know, we don't even think of that as a stunt. He better make sure he has it together. Uh, and he, he really paid attention to all of it, had it dialed in tight, was really good. I was very confident in his understanding and ability to handle any situations that came up. Uh, we did a few skydives together and he did remarkably well for someone with you know 200 jumps over 10 years or 20 years however long he's been been jumping for uh and really he was enjoying it he was having a great time and they just had fun being ridiculous <laughs> it, was, it was pretty much unplanned and unscripted as far as i know and it was i was only on the airplane as you know we have to have a safety person on there just to make sure it's all going as it's supposed to but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and they took it as seriously as it needs to be while having a great time and just making the most out of it. Yeah. Mm. You know, with celebrities coming to Paris, Tom Hanks has jumped there, David Blaine, Miley Cyrus. And I know you, you don't have a lot of necessarily personal interaction, but you've met a lot of people uh, coming through there, celebrity or otherwise. Is there anyone that's come through the drop zone or in your adventures that really impressed you? It's not that uncommon that we have, you know, some celebrities coming through. And for the most part, the jumpers in the drop zone doesn't get that excited about it. You know, we're at the drop zone. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of cool, but they're doing their own thing and, and we're jumping. We're, we're busy. So it's not that big of a deal until Joe Kittinger showed up. Mm. When Joe Kittinger showed up at the drop zone, the whole drop zone just about shut down. Because everybody wanted to walk up and shake Joe's hand. Everybody wanted to, that. As, as celebrities go, Joe Kittinger is much more a big celebrity on a drop zone than, than Tom Cruise or Patrick Swayze or Miley Cyrus or anybody else. And it was, it was great to have Joe there. You know, to think, and this as well, uh, they were, Felix and the Red Bull team were planning on doing that one, you know, that high altitude one before Alan did his. But to have Joe there, Joe, who did it in 1960 when he had like 35 jumps, <laughs> it's it's a pretty crazy thing to do now. But for him to do it then and to have the, the courage and the the balls to do that, he's just an amazing, an amazing human being. It was wonderful to get to sit down and talk with him. We've lost him now, but so glad to have had that that privilege. To, mm. to have had the time. And he was he was by far the biggest celebrity that's ever walked on the drop zone. I had never met him. I've heard him speak, but I, I've heard he was just a wonderful man. What a character. I mean, the things, his life had challenges that my, my life's been way easier than that. I've never had to do anything like what he's done. This podcast is sponsored by Beyond Marketing, the digital marketing agency for the skydiving industry. As avid podcast consumers ourselves, We're not fans of ads during a podcast, so we'll spare you the details about why we love building websites and helping businesses show up in Google search results. But just know this, we're passionate about the skydiving industry and how it markets itself. Look us up at dropzone.marketing. Again, 
That's dropzone.marketing. So, Dan, you've won world championships, world cups, national championships many times over. You've skydived in some of the most amazing places all over the world. You've met some incredible people. I, I almost loathe to ask the question because it, no skydiver seems to be able to answer it well. Like, what was one of the most notable skydives you ma- you've made when you've made 30,000? But is there one that, that you could sort of say, yeah, that, that, that particular job was really badass. Is, is there one that was like, wow, I can't believe I did that? I mean, there's, there's, there's several. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, the, 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 the biggest one is still the first one. You, nothing ever surpasses that, you know, my first jump. I mean, that will never be forgotten. That is, you know, the, the experience that led my life the direction that it has gone for the last 43 years since then. And uh, every time I see students walk on the drop zone to do their first jump, I'm, I'm, I'm still right there with them. I still remember what it was like. You know, what it was like showing up at the drop zone that first day that it was just a miracle you made it. You made it to the drop zone. You were mm-hmm. begging for your car not to start. You were begging for traffic to be bad. You were begging for it to be raining. Please, <laughs> please give me an excuse, but you still made it. You parked in the parking lot. You walked in. They walk in so slowly sometimes, <laughs> forcing one step after another, but they, they showed up, and I can remember all of that. So uh, the first jump you know, I think for everybody will always go down as, as a huge one. Uh, there were jumps. I mentioned two particular jumps in competition, uh, that I rock, talked about in my book also, uh, which were just huge moments for me. There was really dumbass jumps, like jumping out of cars, rolling them out the back of sky vans and almost killing myself in the process that had its own special uniqueness. <laughs> Is a good lesson in what not to do, but there's been there's been so many, and and to tell you the truth, my favorite jumps usually the last one I did. I was on the drop zone the other day. It was 110 degrees. It was super hot day, and uh, the wingsuiters room is right next to, right next to my office. And a few of them walked over in their shorts and they said, "It's too hot for a wingsuit. Let's go make a jump. You're coming with us." Went up with the wingsuiters in our shorts and made a jump, and it was great. Had a great time. Just watching them try to dock on a two-way was fabulous. You know, they everybody got there, but it was working so hard. It felt like me when I jumped with them in the wingsuit, uh, and it was you know it was great. So I still I still enjoy every jump I get to do. What was the circumstance that even led you to the first jump? I had wanted to jump all my life. I remembered when fantasizing about flying as a little kid. I think lots of kids dream about flying. That was my biggest fantasy, whether it was a superpower, you know, the best superpower in the world and the best superhero uh, skill in the world, or whether it was watching birds, you know, watching birds fly and thinking, how great is that? How cool is that? Hmm. And after my father passed away when I was still four, my mother moved my brother and I to Hawaii. And this is in 66, 67, when... Hawaii wasn't like it is now uh, and just watching the birds there and just thinking about how great it would be to be able to fly and at that point saw a TV show I don't know if it was ripcord or gypsy moths or something it was the first time I actually saw people in free fall saw them flying you know flying a person flying unattached to any man-made flying machine 
And from that time when I was six, maybe, or five, however old I was, I thought, ah, I'm doing that. I'm doing that as soon as I can. So as soon as I turned 18, and it was winter, you know, my birthday's in February, so I had to wait for the for spring. But as soon as, it, as soon as I could, I went and did the first jump. Had you ever, other than what you saw on TV, had you ever seen an actual skydiver before getting to the drop zone? I don't think so. Being a former drop zone manager of a much smaller drop zone than the one you run, I certainly had a few pet peeves. What, what is a Dan BC pet peeve on the drop zone? I mean, there's two, basically. One is just people being unintentionally complacent and putting themselves in dangerous situations and not even know it, not even know it because they just they think they've got it together and they, they don't. They're taking on jumps or equipment or whatever that they just have no business doing and they don't they don't get it. You know, they don't get it. If they realized how stupid it was, they wouldn't do it. But they've become just so complacent and overconfident because nothing's really gone wrong yet. So they they mistake that for how well prepared they are for any situation. I mean I've written a bunch of articles and videos on safety things because it's the most important thing man you, i've lost way too many friends and seen people get hurt when it never should have happened and gotten away with stuff myself where i was just pure luck that i didn't didn't get hurt or didn't die it's my most important mission in the sport right now <laughs> and has been for probably the last 12 years is just trying to keep everybody alive so i can have more fun with them because it cuts into my fun when they hurt themselves it's all about me <laughs> so the safety the safety thing is a constant pet peeve even in paris we're pretty good you know i mean as a as a safety culture on the drop zone uh we try to beat it into people's heads to be staying on top of it and not being complacent and i think overall it's pretty good like this and the other pet peeve is is just you know mean mean people which we also have pretty much built out of our culture. So once in a while, there'll be someone who's just behaving in a, a way that's just not not nice, for lack of a better way to put it. And uh, mm. we don't allow that. We have two very strict rules at Paris. One is don't be dangerous. The other one is don't be a dick. Mm. Um, so we try to stick to those all the time. I imagine if Dan BC is mad at me for one of those two reasons, I would take note. I don't want Dan BC mad at me. I don't get mad that easily, you know? I mean, it's usually if I see a safety thing, it's just, I mean, I'm, the first thing I do if I see someone do something that they just got lucky and they could have gotten hurt, the first thing I usually do is just hug them because I'm so glad I'm not doing CPR. Um, uh, and just make sure they know that it is from the heart, man, that with the safety advice I'm going to give you now, I'm not angry at you. I'm thrilled that you didn't hurt yourself. But, uh, I mean, if they, if they, come back with just ridiculous, arrogant, uneducated, ignorant comments, well, then sometimes it, I might get a little bit angry. Uh, but for the most part, that's not the case. And with the, with the mean people, usually just try to have fun with them and break them of their misguided ways mm. or just break them, whatever. <laughs> Dan, you, you, let's, uh, let's pivot for a moment. You are now a professional speaker and uh, speak in front of major brands. What is your messaging to these major corporate brands? How are you bridging the gap from skydiving to the corporate world? I really tried to write my book so it wasn't for skydivers. Clearly, there's lessons learned through skydiving in it, and skydivers can relate to it, I think, in a, a special way that non-jumpers may not, but it's not written 
for skydivers. It's written for anybody. And it's the, the lessons I've learned about really passionately following your dreams, putting together a good plan for how to accomplish them, how to face it when you run into obstacles and roadblocks, how to build a team, what it really means to build a team. Uh, all these things that occur to anybody who is striving to achieve any ambitious goal, uh, including pretty much every business uh, and the teams that uh, that the businesses create towards their goals. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all lessons learned through my experiences, but ones that uh, people can relate to in, in any field. I've spoken uh, for military groups, several banks for the Canadian agriculture industry. I mean, as far removed from skydiving as, as, as you could be. So I guess the message gets across. If somebody listening would want to hire you for, as a speaker, how would they get a hold of you to, to bring you in? You can start just by going to my website, which is danbrotskychenfeld.com. There's emails there as well. Contact me at Skydive Paris. I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Not hard to find. Let's talk about aging. You referenced on your social post, actually, as recently as yesterday, that welcome to 61. We're doing things now that we didn't have to worry about before. And I will say personally, by the time this comes out, I'll be at the ripe age of 46. And I have an awareness of those things that I said, yeah, one day I'm going to do those things. The day is now that I need to start doing these things much less that there's no guarantee of tomorrow. But how, how are you managing with aging? Because your zeal for skydiving is so big, you're in great physical shape, but we all sort of have to deal with our, our mortality, I guess. How do you manage that? You don't want to slow down. You love skydiving, but nature says you're, you're probably going to have to at some point. I mean, I've already, you know, slowed down. Uh, you know, fortunately, I mean, one is stay as healthy as you can possibly stay. And I think I, you know, I try to keep a good sense of humor about it because I think that's the first key. Uh, and it's a losing battle, right? I mean, like, you're going to lose. Sooner or later, you're going to lose. But try to go down swinging as best you can, put up as good a fight as you can, stay as healthy, as strong as you can, uh, Can do continue doing the things that you love to do. You know, I still am going to the Nationals, you know, two weeks from now. And every year, you know, somebody asked me, man, do you – do you miss it? Do you miss trying to go for the gold? Do you miss trying to win? I'm like, yeah, of course. It was amazing, amazing experiences. I, I, I treasure and cherish every moment and teammate, everything I did. It's great. Of course I miss it. And I say, well, would you want to do it again? I said, no, <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it again. I don't have the desire to want to win that like I used to, you know, and, and to have to put all the work that goes into it. I'm so proud of the teams that were just at the World Cup, you know, and, and just, you know, the U.S. pretty much swept most of it. I look at the the airspeed guys now, and it's still, I mean, you know, I feel, feel like the godfather or something, but uh, just so proud of, of what they've accomplished. Uh, any opportunity I can get to jump with them is, is great, but I know the work that it takes. I know how hard it is. And, and it was worth it to me all the years that I did it. And But I stopped because I anticipated that, you know what? Next year may be the year that I might wake up on a few days and wish I wasn't doing it. And I'm going to quit before that happens. The goals that you have, I don't have the same goals I had then. I still love skydiving just as much. And I'm still 
doing it plenty and I'm still having a great time with it. But uh, the goals, you know, the goals change. Mm. The goals change. So I think continue doing the things that you love. Continue discovering new things that you might want to do. Keep at it. Keep mm. at it. Make every, make every day worthwhile. Get out of bed before the sun comes up and go to the gym so you're ready for whatever whatever hits you next. As you look at, at the landscape of formation skydiving today, is there any one or couple of, of, of jumpers that have caught your eye like the mark is on them? Greatness. I mean, there's there's many, and it's funny looking back, you know, looking back at it and just recognizing this mark. Uh, I recognize it having had been on so many teams and built so many teams and brought up so many new teammates. Um, I've got a, I think I've got a pretty good eye for for that mark, and especially also on the the newer jumpers as well. I remember at the '95. World 94 World Cup Airspeed's first international competition where the first time we're trying to beat the French team, the tag team who had been the world champions for the previous 10 years, basically. And we were we were pretty confident just because we are. <laughs> you know, we had trained up. We were ready to go. We came with that attitude that we knew we were going to have a good fight with uh, with the top French team there, but we're confident. And I saw the this young, young French team a whole new whole new group of guys uh and i remember saying to my teammate you see those guys over there they're going to be a problem those guys are going to be a problem uh and we ended up beating the team that was there we won again in 97 those guys got us in 99 <laughs> i remember seeing most of the airspeed teammates over the years when they were just kids getting started and seeing how you know that I can tell I can tell they've got the fire they've got the desire they've got the potential they've got no sense they'll uh, <laughs> I think they're going to go far um, so I think we have plenty of people like that and and disciplines across the board you know forever it was the twenty points was like the four minute mile it was would anyone ever break it and now it's blown away yeah. you as a fan when you when you observe. Are you amazed at what you're seeing today? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it's great. You know, and I, uh, the highest that we got up to, I think, was 22. And there weren't any wind tunnels, and the busts were two points. Um, mm. So you were a little bit more careful about it, you know, a lot more careful about it. But I love, and I love looking at our videos before from back then and looking at what the guys are doing now. And I say guys, guys, girls, whatever, because it doesn't matter in formation, Scott. It's pretty much equal playing field for everybody. Uh, just to see how far they've come with those with those tools and doing the things that we we only dreamt about doing. And I remember when we did twenty two. I was like, I can you know what? I can taste twenty four. I can taste it. I, I mean, because you, whatever you're doing, you're always leaving points on the table. And and we did twenty two. Ah, but it, but if we had if we did this here and this there, we could have had twenty four. Twenty four sitting there. I know what twenty four is going to feel like. The thought never occurred to me what twenty seven was going to feel like, or twenty eight was going to feel like. And to watch to watch it now is just in, incredible, incredible. I'm still trying to win the airspeed raffle so I can get uh, get in there for a day <laughs> and try to keep up. Dan, last question. Tell me about a a crossroads moment that when presented with an option to go one way or a different way that 
you took that, that gets you here. Maybe you didn't take. We wouldn't even be talking right now. You know, there's several, and I think I've mentioned a lot of them in my book, where there's something you really didn't plan for, but you can just feel in your gut that this is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do now. I mean, I think the world works in some amazing ways. And I think opportunities are presented to us quite quite frequently, especially if, you know, when I decided I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to win the world. I'm, I'm, I've got this dream. I've got this passion. I want to do everything I can do to do it. And I was so driven to it. And I was making decisions that I thought would lead me there. Suddenly that path is going to bring you across other people's paths who have a similar vision and a similar dream. And you have to have your eyes open. You have to, you know, you have to realize that any person you meet anytime, anywhere could be that person. So to be open to that possibility and not to walk around with your doors closed, your headset on and your shades on and not seeing and hearing and touching everybody that's around you. Just one that comes to mind. I had left Ohio. I was on my way to Paris. This is in the fall of 88. Uh, Paris had a team called the Gumbies who my team from Ohio had done eight-way with and 10-way with. And we were pretty much the two top, two, two of the top civilian teams, two of the three top civilian teams. And I thought I would, when I decided I want to go find teammates, I thought those guys would be a blast. We'd have a great time together. I still jump with one of them quite a bit. Dan Palat is his name. And he's, it's, we still all the time we're jumping together. It's, it's fabulous, <laughs> the relationships you build. But that's a different question. Uh, and I was driving, I was going to take a couple of weeks and drive across the country in my van and just get off the highways and go through everywhere. But I was so, man, I was so excited about this. I thought I got to be there now. I got to go now. I'm going to, I'm going right now. And I just took off and I just drove pretty much straight across the country. And I was coming through Arizona, I believe I was on the eight freeway. It was just sunrise, basically. This was maybe 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, and the sun was just starting to come up, and the sunrise in Arizona is like the sun sets. It's just incredible. I've been driving all night, and there was this just gold ball that was to the east, you know, as, as I was coming. Uh, and I saw up on the sign uh, Coolidge, the sign to the town of Coolidge. And I remembered that there was a drop zone at Coolidge and that uh, the national champions led by Tom Pyrus had come from there in 1981. That wasn't on my way there, though. I was on my way to Paris, but there it was. It was just right there. And there was this sun coming up, which looked like a big gold medal, which was the direction of Coolidge at the time because it was east of where I was driving. I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a detour right now and just go and see what's going on. Whatever ridiculous time in the morning it was, I got to the drop zone. The only person up and around was this guy who was, you know, probably 10 or 15 years older than me. And his name was Larry Hill, who was the owner of Scott of Arizona. Uh, and we're the only people there. We're the only people awake. You know? As I drive my van on after driving all night, you know, he starts telling me about he, you know, he had just opened the drop zone in Coolidge. He had a smaller place before, and he wanted to build the biggest training center. Four-way was just starting to take off. All the activity was in DeLand. Everything was in DeLand because DeLand had Tom Pyrus, who was 
the guy who had started the drop zone at the, the team in Coolidge. Uh, Bob Hallett was in the land. That's where the tag team was, and that's where it was really taking off. And he said he's, he's going to try to make Coolidge into the biggest training center uh, in the world, make Scott of Arizona into it. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm looking for a team. <laughs> uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking for teammates. You know, it's, I, I want to win the Nationals. I want to win the Nationals. I want to win the world, mate. And he said, what, have you ever done? Have you ever competed before? And I said, yeah, I won the silver medal, you know, two years ago. So I was the closest thing he'd seen to a four-way champion in some time. And he was uh, a, the kind of drop zone I would need to be at to, to try to build the team I, was, I wanted to build. We basically started talking about what ultimately became Airspeed. Had I not made that turn at 5 o'clock in the morning, whatever stupid time of morning it was, I wouldn't have stopped there. And then within an hour, Jim Hotsey showed up who uh, was organizing that day and was looking for a team. Uh, a guy named Jeff Root was there who has a drop zone. He had one in New Jersey, I believe, or Pennsylvania. Yeah. Was there. He and Jim were trying to build a team. Neither of them had ever been to the Nationals before. Uh, I called Mike Trad to see what he was doing. He said, hey, by the way, I happen to be moving out. I'm going to go to school in Tucson. And he was on his way out there and started my first team in Arizona and building that relationship with Larry. But had I not just out of pure gut instinct decided to uh, detour 30 miles into the desert back east when I'd been driving west for the last 32 hours, I don't know that there ever would have been, you know, an airspeed or whatever. That's where it all started in that first conversation. Incredible. And the rest, as they say, is history. You, Kirk Verner, Jack Jeffries, Larry Hill, forgive me for anyone else that I've, I've missed, but Mark Kirkby, this era, this hotbed, <laughs> all, all yeah. in, in the hall of fame. It's crazy. It is pretty crazy. And we never would have guessed back then. We were just kids wanting to turn points fast. You know, we we're just driven for no reason other than we just love it. We can't, we can't not do it. We can't, we have to do it. Uh, but here we are 30 years later and don't regret a thing. When I think of, skydiving images dan the one that like that i hold like in high esteem like i go wow is you and jack and kirk and mark walking to the plane the photo was taken by ted wagner and it's the four of you young guns about to sort of slay the giants it's like it's about greatness is about to show itself it's a, an extraordinary photograph and it seemed like you all were unaware that it was even being taken. I know which one you're speaking of. I think I've got it right here in the book. Mm. <laughs> Looking at that picture, you can just see the friendship and the brotherhood uh, that was built amongst this team. Um, and starting from not, you know, it is Jack and I were adversaries for no other reason than we're punk kids and that's the team we need to beat. <laughs> so let's let's be enemies because that's that's what stupid punk kids do you know but by the time we had gotten to that picture the respect the brotherhood the trust counting on each other you can't do it without your teammates you are counting on these guys you're trusting them completely you you have their heart in your hands and your heart is in theirs and 
the friendships and the love that that builds. And you can see it in that, in that picture at the moment. When I look at it, that's what mm -hmm. I see. Uh, and had we never, had we never won, we still would have had that. And having that is mm -hmm. probably why we won. Dan, I have enjoyed this conversation. Tim, nice that we finally had a chance to have it, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like I've been on a, on a journey with you in the last 90 minutes. Thank you for your generosity. You are uh, a consummate professional. Uh, you're a skydiver skydiver. You have no ego despite your accomplishments that makes you unapproachable in any way. I am honored to say that I'm a friend of yours. Thank you for all you do for our sport and how you represent everybody. Thank you, James. Let's, uh, let's keep it up and do a lot more. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to the 20 Minute Call podcast. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you always have the latest episode downloaded. And leave a review if you really enjoyed the episode. If you want to contact the team, our email address is info at beyondmarketing.xyz. This episode was edited and engineered by Garnet Znydrick of the YouTube channel Blue Skies Fun Days. Thanks for listening, and join us in two weeks for our next episode.